It is September 8th, 2023. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. This is our first Friday after Labor Day. I actually devoted my full newsletter to uh, deplorable, deplorable, deplorables, kind of filled up the zone here. Normally, Tim, I have this kind of, you know, if you have a lifetime deplorable rating, we don't include you in the weekly ratings, but I, I bent the rules a little bit. Because you, how can you do a deplorables of the week without Jim Jordan and the fact that he just got slapped down by Fonnie Willis? How, how do you do it without, you know, the latest George Santos story or, and I'm, I'm sorry that I keep coming back to Tommy Tuberville. I, you know, we've got to put him, you know, on the shelf. He's got to, you know, he's in the clubhouse. Don't want any of those F slurs in their poems in our military, Charlie. Right. Don't want poems. that. Only want men who can't read in the military. Well, you know, if, if literature breaks out among the ranks, just who knows what could happen? People start reading, they start <laughs> thinking, and, you know, Tommy Tuberville, I, you know, look, I mean, Tommy Tuberville as a coach probably realized, you know, the, the dangers of having football players read books and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm pretty mm. sure he's been consistent on, on all of that. So, yeah, I'm guessing a couple of his players read a few more poems than him, but, you know, I don't know. Okay, so we have a little bit of, uh, of alignment of the stars here. Because uh, in in my deplorables of the week, I think my favorite item was the cool kid philosopher Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, who both got pooned by this guy named. Well, I, I don't even want to take it away from you because you just destroyed him with it with a tweet yesterday. This is this is the guy who is has the bombshell report that. <sighs> that Barack Obama was gay or whatever. And and Tucker Carlson gave him airtime. And I know that a lot of this is sort of same old. Do we same. call it airtime if he's got fired from TV? Stream time. Yeah, okay, stream time. I, thank you. I stand corrected here. You know, part of me is like, okay, it's same old, same old. Tucker Carlson, you know, is, you know, is a fire hose of bullshit. But even by these standards, putting this guy giving this guy any credibility whatsoever. So do your thing because you just utterly dismantled all of this. It's a great moment in American uh, journalism. Thank you. We were ahead of the curve last Friday um, talking about how Can when Candace Owens talked about this, all the this stuff bubbles yeah. up. This is why, you know, we do this. You don't have to suffer through the right wing media. This stuff bubbles up and then and yeah. you think it might just be one person sending a weird tweet. It's not that. No, like they these narratives yeah. develop. And the narrative du jour was was Obama being a secret gay and uh, also doing crack yeah, smoking. This story gold that the Candace was talking about that we discussed last week you know, was a rehash, you know, for people who have no memory, for people who weren't alive in 2008 and the before times or who, you know, were going about their lives and not worrying about the end of our democracy who didn't pay attention that closely. This was around in 2008 in the same fever swamp. So there was this guy, his name is Larry Sinclair. And actually, before I get into this, I just want to say, because some people are going to be like, why the fuck are you talking about this? I do think it's important to just point out, Tucker Carlson is is now on his live stream in the basement. But Ben Shapiro, who just jumps on this, is the biggest right-wing podcaster. There's 40% of the country that is engaging in this sort of stuff. And like I think like we learned in 2016 right. what putting our head in the sand does and, and, and where you end up. So anyway, people need to know how crazy these fuckers are or else, you know, who knows? We might end up with a President Tucker or Shapiro someday. We tried that. Like, let's ignore them. Let's not yeah. give them oxygen. Let's pretend they don't exist. Uh, let's just treat them as, as clowns. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're like running the Defense Department and attempting That's a coup. Right. So, yeah. you know, um, we, we, we need to at least like make sure people realize the extent of their clownitude. So this guy, Larry Sinclair, in 2008 came forward. 
with a rather salacious story that in 1999, he was in Chicago and, you know, he was looking for a night of fun and he asked his limo driver, you know, if he might know a young gentleman that might be interested in, uh, you know, maybe procuring his wares and having a night of, of debauched drugs and, you know, lovemaking. And uh, the, uh, supposedly this, this limo driver knew exactly the right person for this. Sure. And he called up a local state senator named uh, Barack Obama. <sighs> and so they drove from his Comfort Inn Hotel to some lounge downtown. The guy can't remember the lounge's name. And outside the lounge was a strapping young man, uh, you know, skinny guy with a weird name. And he was like, he was down to, you know, he was down to clown. That, and then it started from there. And then they had two nights of doing crack together, smoking crack, oral sex, oral sex in the limo, going back to the hotel. He has this very long story that he tells. And so uh, he has this press conference in 2008 where he was going to share this. And, um, you know, the right-wing media at the time, which was, you know, far less robust than it is now, was all, was into it, though. The alternative one, Fox, not Fox, but the online right-wing media. And he has this press conference mm-hmm. where he rambles and rambles. Our mm-hmm. friend Dave Weigel, who's been on this podcast, was there. And at the end of the press conference, he gets arrested by D.C. Metropolitan Police. Larry Sinclair gets arrested. Yeah, Larry Sinclair gets arrested by D.C. Metropolitan Police. Why did he get arrested? Well, he had a warrant out for his arrest in Delaware. You come to find out, Ben Smith reported on this in Politico, that uh, Larry Sinclair has a lifetime as a con man and a fraudster. He uh, he had 16 years in jail in Colorado for fraud and credit card charges. Uh, He had theft and forging a check in Florida, theft in Delaware, Colorado records list him with 13 aliases, including Larry, Vizcara, Avia, Mohammed, whatever. He lied to courts. Uh, And four years prior to that press conference, he he said he couldn't appear in Pueblo, Colorado on another theft charge because he was disabled with a severe spine injury and terminally ill. Somehow he he miraculously uh, rose like Lazarus and was able to walk into the press club in 2008. After that, uh, the, the website whitehouse.gov offered, or uh, whitehouse.com, excuse me, offered to pay him $100,000 if he passed a lie detector test verifying these claims. He took the test and failed it. Awkward. This is a preposterous, if you look at this man, yeah. the barstool sports guy, who is not exactly, you know, Mr. Right. Discretion. He was like, I met this person in Tucker's because I was also doing an interview with Tucker the same day. And he's the least credible person I've ever met in my life. I give him a 0.0% chance of telling a true story. If you just look at him, I don't want to be stereotypical, but he looks like the, the kind of person that would tell you anything that you need to hear for one more bump of cocaine. I mean, that's just exactly how he reads. Any journalist, any newsroom knows guys like this who wander in, they've got the story, and you look at them, you spend about 15 seconds doing a background check, and you realize, this guy's a nut. We don't even want him around. We're not going to talk to him. (laughs) Tucker Carlson, despite everything that you just mentioned, all of the details that show that this guy's a complete fraud, devotes a whole interview to him. So here's the the tweet that got my, uh, my attention. So Ben Shapiro, you know, the cool kid philosopher. But a major influence. Destroyer of bad arguments. Right. Times. Tweets out, serious question. Serious. After watching Tucker Carlson's interview with Larry Sinclair, why are his allegations significantly less credible than those of, say, E. Jean Carroll or Christine Blasey Ford? To which you responded... Larry Sinclair had fraud charges in two states, went to jail in three, filed an affidavit 20 years ago saying he couldn't stand trial because he was terminally ill, seems to be alive now. Colorado records list him with 13 aliases, and he failed a polygraph test over these claims. 
other serious questions. People need to understand that, I mean, there are lies and there are bullshit, but then there's Tucker Carlson taking this guy and saying, I am so desperate. I am so thirsty for attention that I'm going to throw this guy up. And Ben Shapiro's serious question, serious questions. Why would he be less credible than Eugene Carroll, who was, by the way, found credible by a federal jury and judge? Yeah, not only was Eugene Carroll found credible by a federal jury, but Eugene Carroll, at her defamation trial, in which the jury found that Donald Trump had raped her, raped her. provided eleven witnesses. She provided yeah. eleven witnesses at this trial. You know, can I offer another reason, Ben Shapiro, why Eugene Carroll is more credible than this lying, fraudulent crackhead? Uh, yeah, how about the eleven witnesses? That's what happened when you ha- make an accusation like this. You bring corroborating evidence. You bring a diary. You bring the friend that you told in real time. You bring something. Sinclair had nothing. He he didn't he didn't bring any. He couldn't even remember the fucking name of the place where they met. Okay, so serious question though. Serious question. You would think that Tucker Carlson has some residual concern for his credibility, or is that naive? I don't think so. How does this help him? How does this advance any cause that he wants, other than? I'm going to do something outrageous. I'm going to see what shit I can throw against the wall and get away with. I mean, there is part of me that thinks that Tucker Carlson's kind of in the mode now saying, you know, it's like, how far can I push it? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Will there be any consequences? Well, he's out on his ass at Fox News. He's off in some corner of Elon Musk's basement now. But this is holy crap. I mean, even Elon Musk was saying, yeah, this doesn't sound like it's real to me. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's he wants to see what he can get away with. I think that he thinks it's a big game now. I, you know, I, it's hard, far be it for me to psychoanalyze Tucker, but I think that he gets joy out of this and that he thinks it's funny. He thinks it's funny for people's hair to be on fire yeah. and he thinks it's funny to, you know, do this sort of thing. I, this story is ridiculous. I, you know, I didn't even get into the fact that Larry in this interview I'm watching, he talks about how Barack Obama was also involved in some murder of another of a gay choir director yeah. at his church because they might have had an affair and like tucker doesn't ask any of the obvious follow-up questions tucker's not an idiot okay. he used to be a talented magazine writer i just i reread his 1999 right. bush profile the other day it's really well done actually i you know this is not a moron like he he knows how to ask follow-up questions which makes it actually worse yeah, right absolutely. i mean it makes it worse that he knows what he is doing he knows that he is engaging in defamation he knows that barack obama is not going to be able to sue him for all this in our defense for, for spending time talking about this, because you know that we're going to get a little bit of, you know, in the comments section, people saying, you know, Tim and Charlie, why are you even talking about this? Then don't be surprised in the next couple of months when you see a poll showing that 40% of Americans actually believe that Barack Obama did blank, 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 because this is the world we yeah. live in, Okay. You have to debunk it and give people yes. something to push back on. Is this a, is this a silver bullet? No, but ignoring it's not a silver bullet. I swear to God, I was not. I sent that tweet that you just yeah. read, and then I was like, okay, I'm done with this. No. And then you know, you said in Slack, you need to write an article. You got to write it. You got to do it. I don't know if I should write an article about this. It's like this fucking guy, like really. And then two minutes later, I pop over to Instagram, stall a little minute, as people do, look through my stories, and there it is. Like literally, one of the first stories I clicked on is somebody that's not political old friend and you know it has a little thing that's kind of cheeky but kind of serious it's like so barack did 
you know, gay sex and crack. Huh? And I'm like, this is how things happen. This is how this stuff gets out. This is how conspiracies spread. And so like for people like that, you have to give them a link that's like, no, okay, now I can send this to you. And is that going to convince the people in the deep MAGA world? No, that is going to convince that guy on Instagram, right? Who maybe was a little bit confused. And does it really matter? I guess not, but I, I think that this is part of a broader project, the Flood the Zone with Shit project that, that Steve Bannon said. That's like, we are corrupted. Mm-hmm. You know, we are going to advance these lies. We are going to advance these bigoted conspiracies and corruption. And as part of the strategy for that is we're going to bring everybody else down with us. We're going to smear them. And so then you can't judge us. You can't judge Tucker on his lies and conspiracies and Donald Trump's. If, if, if Barack Obama was hiding his secret life as a gay lover and, and crack addict, then how could you judge Donald Trump for his rapes and his, you know, coup, right? That is the strategy here. So it has to be pushed down. It has to be pushed back upon. I agree with you completely. I guess the question is whether you can push back and push down on it anymore, because I remember, and we've, we've talked about this, I remember back in the before times when you would get a crazy conspiracy theory like this and somebody would, would forward it and you would write back to them and saying, okay, do you understand where this comes from? Here's why it's not true. I would send them all the information about Larry Sinclair's frauds and aliases and, and arrests and everything. And they would say, okay, you know, thanks. I'm, I'm not going to you know forward Uncle Otto's emails like this anymore. But- since 2016, when you do that, people go, well, you know, why am I going to believe anything from the Washington Post? Or, yeah, he was convicted by the deep state in Colorado. It becomes irrefutable. I mean, and this, this, right. is, this is the world that Tucker has helped create in, in which he thinks he flourishes, which is that he's in these hermetically sealed alternative reality silos and you just can't break in. And th- this may be an example of it, but I do think you're right. We have to push back against all of this. I do want to say it's sad. My yeah. final comment on that is I think Tucker's life is sad. And I think he's projecting. He randomly went off on Bill Crystal recently and he was like, oh. can you imagine what a dinner party is like at Bill Crystal's house? It has to have, there has to be no joy there. Like these people are joyless, these establishment types. And to me, that felt like a confession. Yeah, you've never been invited to Bill's house, me neither. But it felt like a confession. It seems like somebody that I think would never admit it, but thrived on being invited to write profiles about George W. Bush for Talk Magazine. And now is pushed out to the edges with these weird freaks. And I think he's probably somewhere deep inside his soul a little unhappy with himself because this feels sad. I was watching the interview. It seems sad. And again, you're, you're Tucker Carlson. You couldn't do anything, and yet you choose to do this. By the way, speaking of sad, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, you know, Elon Musk, it, it feels like it's uh, an old story that he's, you know, has destroyed Twitter or whatever we're supposed to call it these days, you know, Exeter or whatever. But this last week, it has just been... Where do you start? You know, the fact that he's pushing these anti-Semitic tropes about the uh, Anti-Defamation League, that he's, you know, pushing this this idea that, you know, Jews complaining about anti-Semitism causes more anti-Semitism, you know, that tired old thing. I mean, he's, you know, here's the guy that, that opened up uh, Twitter to Nazis and everything, and he's pushing out these things. And yet that's not the worst thing he did this week. N- now, basically, he's acknowledging that he shut off the Starlink communications to the Ukrainians when they were trying to disable the the Russian fleet, the Russian fleet that that fired missiles that have killed civilians and children and bombed cities and everything. And, you know, this is in the new biography of, of Elon Musk. But Elon Musk is not just a clown. Elon Musk is somebody 
that became a willing ally of the Russians and cut the Ukrainians off at the knees. And there are some pretty significant issues here. You know, what role does Elon Musk, this fucking narcissistic crackpot, play in national security and issues of war and peace here? This is not a joke. Yeah. No, it isn't. And the excerpt was from, was from Walter Isaacson's book, which I'm excited to read. Yeah. And, and Walter is uh, is really un- unbelievably talented. And the story's kind of crazy. He's like watching this Archman football game here right down the street from my house in New Orleans. And like Elon's calling him, talking about how he's going to shut off the Ukrainians. And it's just like, what a crazy scene, you know, for starters to write about and to think that this is where we are as a society, like the Ukrainians are begging Elon to keep these uh, Starlink things open and uh, working. Though to me, reading the story, my, my big takeaway is like, it was really a mistake for everybody to let it get this far. Boeing does not get to have a setting on their plane when you contract with yeah. Boeing that says, oh, we're going to turn off the plane and may, we're going to automatically turn this plane around if you get over Russian airspace. Like, that's not how it works. Like, when you contract with a government, the government is in charge of diplomacy, of military yep. operations. You are providing a service. And I think that the Ukrainians, obviously, they're in desperate times. And it seems like Elon really did help them at the start. But you get in bed with this mercurial figure. And at some point, I guess there was an offer for the U.S. to pay. And Elon spitefully kind of said no. And it was really at that point where, I don't know what needed to happen, a fucking summit at Elon's place in Austin with Tony Blinken and a Ukrainian official. I'm not sure. But you needed to get to a place where it's like, no, this guy doesn't get to decide, right? Like either he's going to contract with us and provide this. But if you were making a movie, if you were writing a movie, you know, about this dysfunctional world where, you know, yeah. this this erratic billionaire is sitting there with top government officials making these life and death decisions, you know, somebody would say this is totally implausible. There's no way that the U.S. government, right. the Ukrainian government would be held hostage by this Iron Man literally out of Iron Man. Just a, a reminder that we, we actually do kind of live in an oligarchy, but the worst, dumbest oligarchy you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, somebody was pointing out, and maybe this is true, that like there's that Malaysian, and this is another reason why we got to monitor the crazy shit. Like there's some, there's this Malaysian yes. influencer, Ian Miles Shong. And if you don't know about him, God bless you. Don't learn it. Yeah, oh, don't yeah. learn another right. thing about yeah. him after this. But he is this Far right MAGA type, but he doesn't even live in America. But somehow he he got a Twitter following, and he, and Elon replies to him all the time. And he was he initially people think all suggested to Elon via tweet that like he shut the, these things down. He also has a Russia Today article, right? So like all of this stuff is intertwined. This is just again why like they needed to have cut a actual military contracting agreement. Or cut this guy off. This situation is fucking nuts otherwise. Hey, folks, this is Charlie Sykes, host of the Bulwark podcast. We created the Bulwark to provide a platform for pro-democracy voices on the center right and the center left for people who are tired of tribalism and who value truth and vigorous yet civil debate about politics and a lot more. And every day we remind you, folks, you are not the crazy ones. So why not head over to thebulwark.com and take a look around? Every day, we produce newsletters and podcasts that will help you make sense of our politics and keep your sanity intact. To get a daily dose of sanity in your inbox, why not try a Bulwark Plus membership free for the next 30 days? To claim this offer, go to thebulwark.com slash charlie. That's thebulwark.com forward slash charlie. 
We're going to get through this together. I promise. Another like bottom story of the day. I want to get to the more important stories of the day, but you slacked me this, this oh, story about George Santos. I kind of thought we were done with George Santos. I just started reading this and laughing in bed this morning. And I was just like, we might just want to just give people a little taste. It turns out that there was, what do they call this thing? Like a vulnerability report. Vulnerability study, yeah. So the campaigns commission a basically opera research on themselves to figure out, okay, what's the worst yeah. thing somebody can say about me, right? I mean, you know, yeah, right. so CBS News got their hands on this vulnerability report for George Santos. This was by his own campaign, and this was widely circulated, and people like Elise Stefanik, who eventually endorsed and campaigned for George Santos, knew about this. I mean, she saw this. And so let me see if I can do a little bit of a reading of of the top things. Again, this is from the Santos campaign itself, um, before he was elected, saying, One victim of the company where Santos worked was an elderly woman living on Social Security who says she was told that if Donald Trump were elected, the stocks and bonds she was invested in would plummet. Santos worked for a Turkish-based company with a litany of customer complaints and scam allegations. The complaints continue while Santos worked there. Santos says his professional experience is working in finance and helping wealth grow, but his personal financial disclosure filed with the clerk of the house shows no personal investments or assets. Then it goes on and talks about Santos' driver's license. He's suspended in Florida. He can't drive in Florida. Santos has had multiple civil judgments against him. Santos is running for office in New York, but he he registered a new company in Florida. Santos says he is socially liberal. To be clear, I am no right winger. And it goes on to uh, question details about his marriage and things like that. It's just, but it's all laid out here. The marriage one was pretty good. We just have to do this one. While married to a woman, I don't, I can't pronounce her name. Social media posts indicate Santos dated and lived with a man who was an illegal immigrant. The man later said he was fearful of being deported once Trump got elected. (laughs) And then Santos began dating his current partner while he was also still married to Vieira. I liked that. And my other favorite one that you didn't mention was that he said uh, he criticized the people storming the Capitol. The campaign team was worried about that one. Ooh. They were like, that might, that, might, that might come back to hurt us in the primary. I mean, he can't drive in Florida. He's secretly dating an illegal immigrant, while married, a man, while married to a woman. His whole career is a lie and a Ponzi scheme. And Elise Stefanik is like, that's my fucking guy. That's my man. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, yes, let's, let's put him in the Congress of the United States. Let's let's go ahead and support him. But of course, this is the Biden regime deep state What's smear it? of an American. Wait, wait, no, it's his own campaign. It comes from his own campaign. Speaking of your own campaign and self-inflicted wounds, Tim, you were also ahead of the curve with a big piece about the complete uselessness of super PACs. Uh, they burn through you know, tens of millions of dollars without moving anything, accomplishing anything. I mean, really, it's quite extraordinary that you have these consultants that that are running the super PACs and keep asking for more money, and they spend these just god-awful amounts of money, accomplish nothing, and just keep, you know, stay in business. But now there's uh, there's more reporting that uh, that Ron DeSantis is disappointed in his super PAC. He was apoplectic Mm. about the release of the memo. So your advice has been, donors, instead of giving to these super PACs, why don't you just take your money and like set it on fire or like give it to some homeless people or what? Give it to somebody. So this is now, uh, just to be clear, I I think that there are certain situations where certain 
like kind of targeted packs and stuff that do certain things, motivate mm-hmm. groups for various things, you know, reach one to two percent of voters on the margins in a general election. Yeah. I, I do think that matters. It's these candidate packs. We learned in 2016, I was there with Jeb, yeah. where we had this hugely funded pack and the campaign didn't have any money and the candidate, you know, I love Jeb, great one-on-one, but, you know, dynamism yeah. on stage wasn't like his strength, right? So we already really? did this. Yeah, really. I know. Um, we already did this eight years ago. And the DeSantis campaign is like, let's set up the same program as Jeb had, but actually yeah. a little worse because Jeb at least had Mike Murphy, who he trusted on the super pack and they had known right. for 20 years. We're going to hire this guy that is just a total stranger right but has a good reputation we're, yeah, we're gonna hire somebody yeah jeff Rowe. Yeah. and we're gonna put him over there where it's gonna be illegal to talk to him we're gonna give him all the money and let him come up with a strategy and ron is just gonna try to win on the force of his personality i mean the whole setup was preposterous from the start <laughs> and as Brilliant. i go in deep detail i have a long rant about this that is maybe more for an insider's podcast than this one mm-hmm. in the article that the short of it is like these things maybe work in lower level races, but in presidential races, it just, it defies obvious logic, right? It's like Donald Trump is a brand that all these voters know. They have a deeply held view on him one way or the other. Maybe some of them are in the cult. Maybe some of them don't like him. Maybe some of them like him, but are open to moving on. But they all have deeply held beliefs about him. Running a 30 second TV ad or having a stranger knock on your door is not going to change your mind about Donald Trump. And if you're going to do that, the 30-second TV ad needs to be, you know, a fucking rip it off his face. You know, it needs to be a new piece of information, something to change things up, a generic cookie-cutter ad. Like, it obviously isn't going to work in this situation. You know, the analogy I gave in the article is like, imagine if you're RC Cola. And you're a marketing guru. You're the Jeff Rowe of cola selling. You go to the investors and you're like, if you give me 50 million, Mm -hmm. I'm going to run some ads in Iowa that say RC Cola is great and not mention Coke. And then I'm going to send people to people's doors and I'm going to knock on them and say, hey, you should try RC Cola instead of Coke. And then at the end of that, RC Cola is going to be the number one soda. Coke's going to be gone. We're going to pass them. Investors would look at you like you're insane. They'd be like, that's fucking, like, that's not going to work. And why would that work in this situation mm-hmm. then? So the whole thing is just preposterous. And there's this other political story this morning that really ground my gears, Charlie. It was Jeff Rowe let people into their headquarters and they let the reporter meet, a uh, good reporter, Sasha Eisenberg, meet their data scientists. And the data scientists are like, we've been testing. We tested one ad in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and another ad in Ottumwa, Iowa. We tested mail in this part of New Hampshire. We tested text messages in the other part of New Hampshire. And we discovered if we do more text messages in this one ad instead of the other ad, then 6% of our target voting audience will be more likely to vote for Ryan. Science. Science. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going, I'm reading this article and I'm like, you're losing by 40. You're losing by 40. Okay. A 6% increase in favorability. A, I think this is kind of voodoo science to begin with, but that's up for another topic. But even if you are right, it's like, you need to fucking change up the game. You need to go attack Donald Trump. You got to do something. You have a zero of a candidate who's lost 14%. Well, you've spent tens of millions of dollars from rich people. And now you're bragging to Politico that you can move things 6% on the margins. And people are still giving this guy money. Give me your money. Tell me. I'll tell you what to do with your money. You know, we'll support local nonprofit organizations. You know, we'll have a foreign exchange program to bring more young French boys to Wisconsin. We'll do things that are useful. We'll help, you know, underhoused people 
in northern Wisconsin? Where where can we spend this money instead of on Jeff Rose beach houses? I wish people would pay attention to you. You know, I mean, there there are of course you know the professional scammers out there who will continue to you know try to sell this, and 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 then there are people who are you know, you know some of the bad ideas are driven by donors, and this is kind of a, a digression because as you were talking, I was thinking back to a conversation I was part of reluctantly in the before times where people were talking about one of the campaigns we were having here in Wisconsin. We used to have a campaign like every month. Remember, there was a period when we were recalling and doing all kinds of things here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the various ideas for you know motivating voters or turning out voters. And uh, there was a, an older guy who was a major donor who said, um, well, let me tell you my idea. My idea is we need to have more billboards. And then he pulls out this little pro thing and he with pictures of billboards that he had put in various locations around the community. And it was like, I paid for these and look at these. And no one's going to say, are you kidding me? Like, what a waste of money. It's like yard signs or like handing out matchbooks or something like that. And yet, because he was a donor, everybody was like, that's really a good idea. You know, where else can we put these billboards? But I got to tell you, Charlie, if Ron DeSantis used all the money to buy every billboard in America and have them all say, Donald Trump didn't build the wall, he's a pussy. That probably would have been a better use of their $50 million. I'm not sure it would have helped Ron DeSantis, but it couldn't have been any worse than what these gurus have been doing with the money. Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis, and that's not going to change. Okay, so this week, and I told you before we started this that I was I was bored talking about the polls and various things, but I think, you know, at the end of the week, we have to talk about it. And you tell me whether you, you think I'm wrong about this. This was the week of the Democratic panic about Joe Biden, you know, probably a rather significant overreaction to a couple of polls, the CNN poll, the Wall Street Journal poll, showing that Donald Trump is actually leading Joe Biden, that Joe Biden is just not doing well with non-white voters. And that when Democratic voters are asked, you know, what are, what are you concerned about? Like overwhelmingly, like just off the charts, the age issue. Really? And, and I know the that there's this issue. big back and forth. Stop talking about the age issue. Okay. He's, he's old. He's getting. Okay. So, and you had a interesting back and forth with the poker guru formerly known as Nate Silver about all of this. So give me your take on this, because again, I understand people saying, stop talking about it, but you know, it is the giant pink dirigible in the room that you can't have a conversation with voters without bringing up. So Tim, talk to me about Joe Biden's age. Yeah. I've, I, we hear your, we get the comments. I get the emails. Yeah. I get mm-hmm. the replies on Twitter and on threads. Mm-hmm. I understand people don't want to hear about the age thing, Joe Biden supporters, Mm -hmm. of which I count myself. But the CNN poll was not a poll of like podcasters and what you're worried about. It was the number one issue by far that Joe Biden voters care about. And so on a political podcast, you know, you're kind of not doing your job if you don't talk about the top thing by far that voters care about. It sort of would be like, right. what would be the point? It would be like turning right. into a Denver Broncos podcast and and having them never mention the fact that the quarterback, Russell Wilson, isn't any good anymore. Like, it's kind of a big problem for the team. So anyway, it is something you have to discuss. Yeah. The other thing, though, on that point about why we discuss it so much that I did want to just clarify, I was thinking about it this week. So people are like, why don't you talk about Trump's age more? Do you want me to tell you my answer to that, Charlie? Yeah. Because I want Donald Trump to die. Oh. I hope Donald Trump dies. I'm not worried about Donald Trump dying. You that said would be the best fucking loud. thing. So I, I so I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about it, so I, I don't need to talk about it that much because I'm not like I'm talking about things that I'm concerned about. I did I said it out loud. I, I, that would be great. Yeah, he's also old. 
but like there's not a lot of sturm and drag among the pro-democracy crowd about like what would happen if Donald Trump fell over. Like that would be awesome. So fingers crossed on that front. But there is some concerns about what can you do to mitigate the issues about Joe Biden's age. And so maybe that's why there's a disproportionate conversation. But it's true that they're both old. I discussed both. I had my Snapchat show. You can watch it this week. It's about our gerontocracy. And I give more detailed thoughts on this on that. Really quick on Nate Silver. No, no, no. Can I get us uh, weigh in on you wanting uh, Donald Trump yeah, to die? Please. Because I wanted to... Um, I distance myself and associate myself in, in some ways with, with all of this. That okay. I would rather say, okay, yes, he's 77 and clearly, you know, uh, has, has cognitive issues. You know, yes, there's, there's no question about it. But you look at Donald Trump and it's like, he's a crook. He's a seditionist. He is one of the most fundamentally odious figures ever to be in American politics. He's a bigot. He's all, yes, he's a big. And, and by the way, he's 77. It, it, it's like in the list of awfulnesses, it's not in the top 10 because there's so much else. It's like you look at Donald Trump and if you're going, you know, he's looking kind of wrinkly. It's like, no, no, no. The point is <laughs> he's a would-be autocrat. He is a serial liar. He's a man with the, with the yes. emotional maturity of a nine-year-old. He is, I mean, whatever you want to say about him, you know, all of that, I think, comes before this. You look at Joe Biden. And unfortunately, because... Thank you for advising and extending my remarks. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you look at Joe Biden and you're going, I agree with him on, you know, policies. I agree with him on this. I, you know, you know, share these values. But yeah. I'm really worried that he looks like he's 100 years old. So it is different. It's yeah. because that, that's a more prominent thing because there's not a lot of other baggage here. But of course, I do want to associate yeah. myself saying that I do find myself, you know, hoping occasionally for an errant meteorite. Okay. Go on. I'm sorry. Back to Nate Silver. It would be nice. I just, just that's all I'm saying. It would be nice. Thing, just, I can't really think of any person, other person who I feel that way about. So it's not like I'm just sending a lot of people into the sun, just one orange person. Um, I've just wrote finally on Nate Silver because I'm sick of talking about this. Yeah. The whole thing is just the media and the meta media criticism narrative stuff is just really insane to me. <laughs> it's like, oh, any Joe Biden supporter is like, all anybody can talk about is the age issue. All Donald Trump supporters talk about is how old Joe Biden is. It's everywhere. It's all they talk about. And then there's this small class of anti anti-Trumpers, yeah. you know, the contrarian class. Right. And they're and they somehow have decided that like the media doesn't talk about this. And that it's the media's trying to protect Joe Biden by not mentioning his age. And Nate was advancing yeah. this theory this week. And on Twitter, I just had to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Do you turn on the TV ever? Like are you you're just playing poker stars all yeah. day online? That's fine. But then don't just make these vast claims, but they are stubborn. They're, they're, these stubborn, egomaniacal contrarians can't just be like, you know what, Tim, you're you're right. Yeah. People do talk about this. That was a mistake. I mistakes, I mention it. I've been wrong. There's a lot, a lot of coverage of it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So you wanted to talk about this new Saudi deal. I feel a rant coming on about the Saudi deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about Tell it. Me. Give people the background of it, what we're talking about. I feel like this is the Tim Rant podcast. It's like, you know, some weeks it's kind of like Charlie's ranting and we have like a repartee going. I think this week you're just like, you just want to wind me up and let me go, which is fine. I like ranting. That was my game plan this week. Yeah, that was your notes this morning. Wind him up, let him go. Okay, Saudi. Yep. So, so yep. we so yep. obviously the Abraham Accords, which were these diplomatic deals that were negotiated during the Trump era between Israel and other Gulf states. Saudi was not one of them. The Biden administration is now trying to expand on this with a mega Saudi deal that does not just include diplomatic relations with Israel, but also 
this is not finalized. We don't exactly know all the details about yes, so this is all reporting via leaks, etc. But also on the table is allowing Saudi to develop a nuclear program and a security guarantee uh, that is not in the same level of NATO, you know, but as some, again, not all the details are out, so we don't exactly know what it would be, but, but you know, some junior version, JV version of, of the NATO security guarantee, American-backed, not, not Israeli-backed, for Saudi. And this is fucking insane. This is madness. And the Biden administration seems to be for this. Lindsey Graham is for this and Jared Kushner is for this and MBS is for this. And I just, I am. Yeah. Yes. I mean, of, of course, Jared's for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Jared's for this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's concerning to me. Just on anything that has that little trio of Lindsey, Jared and MBS all excited has me worried uh, to begin with. Another one of the axis of assholes. Again. Another <laughs> axis one, yeah. of evil. Yeah. So I just don't know. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of voices speaking out about this, about about concerns about this. Uh, you know, I, I have been reaching out to some folks in the Hill that I'm, I want to do something about this next week with other people who are concerned about this, elected officials, not just podcast ranters like me. Just to put a finer point on this, like, you know, in the past, I understood that sometimes, you know, you got to make a deal with the devil over oil prices. And, you know, Saudi, uh, you know, has always had a pretty questionable regime when it comes to morals and ethics. And, you know, you, yeah. I, real politics. I get all that. MBS is a mm-hmm. madman. Like, they, they murdered somebody over a errant tweet sometime over the past two weeks. He killed a journalist. Like he is trying to use his largesse to influence, to get his like grubby hands into the Western world in a lot of different ways. Well, and, tried, it's and it's working. And it's working. It's working. Yeah. He tried to murder, not necessarily order Khashoggi. It isn't just Khashoggi. He tried mm-hmm. to murder, you know, one of his former rivals who was exiled to Canada in Canada. He sent a kill squad to yeah. Canada. They got waylaid. There's a big 60 Minutes piece on this. So, like, this guy is unstable. He is not a friend. It is not like dealing with a king that, you know, maybe they have some social policies, some anti-gay policies I don't like. It's, yeah. They're generally rational. It's not like that. This guy is a lunatic. Okay, but why is this happening? It's not 1975 anymore. He doesn't have us by, you know, by the short hairs when it comes to oil. I mean, we... Yes, he's got a lot of money, but there's a lot of money in the world. What is the what is the attraction here? Why do we have to suck up to him? Yeah, the best I understand it is that there is the oil side of this uh, and and there's concerns yeah. about gas prices. Get that. I get that. Right. Though I wouldn't right. trust MBS as far as you could throw him. You sign this deal, he's still going to want Trump in there. No matter Absolutely. how sweetheart of a right. deal right. you give him, he's still going to prefer Trump and Kushner. Right. And so, uh, you know, he's already shutting down you know, the amount of oil production that's being pushed out of the Middle East. So gas prices are already going up because of that. Anyway, that part doesn't make sense to me. Then there's another, you know, kind of the gray beards, old wise men of, you know, national security apparatus that would argue, and maybe we should have Eric Adelman or somebody smarter than me on to talk about this. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, this would be a big step in peace in the Middle East and and it would, you know, reduce risks that, that there's a blow up in the Middle East if there are more agreements between, you know, the Gulf countries and Israel. And it also ISIS. Iran more. There's some other geopolitical. That would be the best uh, explanation that somehow that you use this to triangulate against Iran, that that you want to isolate them. And so you're always playing those two poles off against one another. That seems like the most plausible. Yeah. But that to me is, is more plausible when it's, when it was like, you go back 20 years and you had 
you know, Ahmadinejad, you know, right. versus right. kind of a pliant king of Saudi that, you know, didn't have global aspirations. Like, are, are we sure that the Iranian regime and Saudi regime are materially different right now? I, I, I guess like on the margins and, and we have a longer ties to Saudi. So, I, you know, people are going to come on here and be like, Tim, what are you talking about? Obviously, Iran, Iran's terrible. This is not a defense of Iran, but it's just like MBS is fucking awful. He is awful and he is dangerous and he is untrustworthy. And it is it makes me very uncomfortable. So that's my rant about this. Okay, so let's get back to domestic politics and some rank punditry here, okay? Because I I do think there's always that temptation to overanalyze the various blips in the presidential race. And of course, I'm going to succumb to those temptations. Is Vivek over? I'm saying this because he had a really genuinely shitty week. I mean, just one bad interview after another. There's no indication that his debate performance has transformed his prospects. It, it feels as if that whole glow lasted about, you know, three or four days. And then he went out and people realized, yeah, he's kind of a smarmy, dishonest, yeah. disingenuous bullshitter. Was he ever under is the question. I, like, I, Was he ever actually running for president or was he just trying well, to cement himself as a future MAGA star? And has he hurt himself with that? Maybe a little bit. Maybe he's over. I think he definitely is overshot. No. I mean, just absolutely annihilated him. Like, that was kind of the type of thing that, that even a MAGA person watching this has to be like, bro, like, how did you not come better prepared for this? So I do think he's hurt himself a little bit this week. I got to tell you, I would lo- just like the political nerd in me, the political dork scientist in me would love for that thing I was wishing about earlier to have happened. And for us to just have to look at what a Vivek DeSantis Haley race would look like, because I think that tells us a lot about the future of the party. I'm not convinced that Vivek's week was bad enough that that would eliminate him in that fantasy scenario. I really do think there's like about a third of the party that's that would want somebody like Vivek about a third of the party. That's kind of like MAGA light that could go for Vivek, but could go for DeSantis and a third of the party that want Haley. And boy, I think yeah. we'd be having a lot more fun if that was what was happening right now, rather than us having to stare down the fucking horror of a Donald Trump nomination, but uh, we're not. And so, Okay, so speaking of speaking of Haley, she's having her moment. Maybe it will last just today. That uh, poll uh, out, I think it was the CNN poll, right? Uh, that shows that well, Biden is behind pretty much everybody. That Haley is the strongest yeah. Republican candidate. So there are a lot of people. Some of the anti antis are going, "Hey guys, you know, if you're Republicans, if you actually want to win, you should go with Haley. Haley is the most electable." And obviously, you know. In the before times, electability would have been a real asset. Does it matter anymore? I mean, I mean, how long is she going to have her moment? I just don't think it's going to ever amount to anything. I and mean, she she has to survive enough to get to South Carolina. It's kind of like how uh, you know if you finish distant third in the and first then two, yeah, and then what from there? So I I don't. I mean, think if she so. loses in South Carolina. I know. said in the age Snapchat. You know, one of my lines in this thing was, "It would be great if we were staring down the barrel of a Haley." Biden race. And like then the age issue, I feel like would also wouldn't be as acute, right? Because it'd be like, okay, worst case scenario. So Haley, I would love for Haley to be the nominee. I probably wouldn't vote for. Um, I certainly wouldn't vote for her actually, um, given, you know, her Trump two step is disqualifying for me. But she is that much better than the other ones. But it's just like, if I feel that way, then what does that say about what the yeah. mega folks feel? They're not going to get there for her. And so I just don't, I, I don't see where she goes from here. I think she's, it's been encouraging, you know, for yeah. her team, like her team feels buoyed, but to me, it feels like 
that eventually you just run into the brick wall of a reality that Republican voters aren't, aren't looking for this. I mean, she's still, it's all of this like, oh, this is so positive. You're still losing to Trump by 45. You're losing to him by 45. So yeah, I mean, she's up in the general. Just one other thing Nothing I thought changed. on the general, that general poll. If you just run this out, if somehow Nikki won the nomination because Trump's in jail and she wins a delegate fight or whatever and they steal it from, I, I don't know how she'd actually win. Doesn't Donald Trump Jr. run as third party? I just, I don't Ooh. actually really know that that's true, right? Like, oh, I think, aren't man, there a yeah. lot of other things that happen then? I find it very hard to believe that the Trump cult people just vote for. It's kind of magical thinking to imagine that you're going to have a Nikki Joe Biden one-on-one. Okay, um, unfortunately, this is this is almost too boring to talk about, but Mike Pence gave a big speech up in New Hampshire, um, <laughs> and I actually had to write something that's about good. it. The speech at St. Anselm's uh, College, which... He clearly was billing as this is his major campaign reset. He called it, you know, a time for choosing, which is the famous Ronald Reagan speech from 1964. And he laid out the contrast between populism and conservatism. Have you have you read the speech? Because well, I haven't read the whole speech, but I, I saw I saw the relevant clips. It's kind of an amazing document. Because, I mean, it's got the boilerplate attacks on the Biden administration. Set that aside. It's got a lot of, you know, the boilerplate nostalgia for Reagan. Set that aside. But then his critique of populism versus conservatism is really very, very pointed. It's very blunt. He's got some very strong language there. In fact, there there are passages in there that could have been written by, you know, a never Trumper, which leads to, of course, the paradox of Mike Pence, because he said, this is the time for choosing for the Republican Party. This is the big choice. It's like, Mike, have you noticed the Republican Party has already made the choice and you were there standing by his side when they chose him? I mean, this is part of the problem. You know, how do you go from standing at Donald Trump's side for four years, supporting all of the anti-conservative populist policies, and then say, yes, but this is the existential threat that we face. We need to reject. There's not room in this party for populism and conservatism. The whole fate of the nation, you know, hangs in the balance. If we don't reject this Trumpian populism, which I supported until five minutes ago, then we will cease to be the conservative party. We will be Republicans in name only. I mean, there's some really strong language in there that's hard to kind of reconcile with Mike Pence. So what do you think? Yeah, I'm excited to see your article on that. Yeah, I'm excited to see that because like when I saw that, I was like, these guys just don't want to accept the consequences of their own actions in supporting Trump. And I chuckled to myself. My thought was initially exactly the same what you just said. It's like, we have a battle for the soul of the party right now. It's like, no, man, we had that battle. It was in 2016. Yeah. I was on the field, actually. I was on I was on the side that you say we you're lost. on now. Yeah, I was like, char- I was charging, yeah. you know, yeah. I was the front line, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, the light brigade, you know, charging to my yeah. death. And and you were on the other side. You shot me. Actually, you we our side that you want, you know, lost already. It happened. Like the battle's (laughs) over, and and now you're kind of like running into the wreckage to extend this metaphor to death, right? Like like running back in, being like it's time to fight, and like their dead bodies strewn around everywhere. It's like sorry, bro. You were on the wrong side. It's over. The fight's over. <laughs> Whoever wrote that for him, I mean, obviously I thought this was going to be the manifesto for restoring genuine conservative principles. But you read it and you go, this reads more like a eulogy because this party <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. It's like, right. and I had the same experience when I was talking in February, I, when I was, you know, had that event with Paul Ryan and he's talking about what the conservative was like. Yeah. It's not 2015 anymore. 
There's a huge amount of denial about how this party has moved, what it actually cares about. So Pence's critique of all the things that have been abandoned, you know, American leadership in the world, you know, concern about character, traditional values, all of that stuff, it's true. But, you know, this time for choosing, they chose and they chose Donald Trump. They chose populism over conservatism, you know, and you ought to know that because you're sitting there as a former vice president of the United States at what, five to seven percent of the polls, which ought to tell you something. He managed to convince himself. It really is amazing. You know, there there'll be psych, could be psychological studies done about this for centuries. You know, just like that mm-hmm. he managed to, and there's so many people like him. He's just an avatar for this. He managed to sit in the Oval Office as the next in line to the presidency and, yeah. and as the number one cheerleader for Donald Trump. And yet still in his brain convinced himself that he hadn't really sold out his principles because he was still, you know what I mean? Because he didn't, when he disagreed with but Donald Trump, he said clear. so. Yeah. yeah, he said so behind the scenes. And, yeah. he, and you know, and, yeah. he, and he's like, actually, you know, we did the tax cuts that were very traditional. Like he convinced himself of that, all that bullshit yeah. that he was spreading. He, he really did convince himself of it. There's a self-delusion. And, and the fact that that self-delusion yeah. is so powerful that it managed to persist even while being in the Trump White House is like, it's pretty it's really remarkable. remarkable. <laughs> Jinx. And especially now that you read the speech where, where he's basically, they're sitting there and he is describing himself as the polar opposite. Yeah. And he says, you know, this time for choosing that they're irreconcilable. The differences are unbridgeable yeah. between populism and conservatism. You were on the side. And it's like. You were on the side. Trump Pence. You're, you're sitting there in the same room. And, <laughs> and now he's saying, yes, yes, we were partners and we accomplished a lot. And yet. I represent a tradition that is completely incompatible with what Donald Trump is representing. And he's trying to kind of have it both ways. We accomplished a lot. And he's saying, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump promised to govern as a conservative, but he and his imitators are not promising that anymore. Well, where's your party going here? Um, So it's kind of a sad, I'm debating whether or not to call it. Your name's on the bumper sticker. Your name's on the bumper sticker. Trump Pence. It's right there. He took the water bottle off the table. You took the water bottle off the table. I mean, you were like, (laughs) you know, it's broad shoulder leadership. Like all this happened. And, you know, it's almost like a multiple personality disorder. Like a me, myself and Irene type situation. Well, I, I, you know, part of me is like, glad you're coming around. Glad you're, you know, laying out the distinctions. We have been saying this for years now, um, you know, in opposition to people like you saying, this is not conservatism. This is a betrayal of all of this. And now you're coming around. Now you're seeing it. And like, welcome to the party, sort of. Eh. Do you think there'll be a single person that well, when when Donald Trump accepts that nomination in Milwaukee is like, Charlie, you know, turns out you were right. <laughs> you were really right about that. Do you think you'll get one? Mike Pence, you think you'll get one? Actually, I get that all the time, but they never say that in public. Then they oh, go out and they it. do something MAGA-like, and okay. it's just like, okay, this is like this has become a cliche. What they say in private, what they mm. say in public, and I'm 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 a little tired of it. So, Tim, uh, we made it to the weekend. So thanks for thanks for joining me again, and I hope that you have a great weekend. I'm planning a great weekend. Happy to do it. We're going to see you in Austin. We're going to be together in two weeks. Two weeks. We're going to be in Austin. Uh, Bill's going to be down there. Mona's going to be down there. Um, We have uh, panels. And then we actually have a meet and greet. So if you're down in Austin, you can, you know, just come in and say, stop talking about this stuff. (laughs) 
You know, we're, we're tired of you uh, talking about, this is what you should be talking about. Instead, yeah, you're, give us you're, say, you're saying things on your podcast that make us uncomfortable and we don't want that anymore. We were proud. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So I will see you in two weeks. And thank you all for listening to uh, this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes with Tim Miller, and we will be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper and engineered and edited by Jason Brown. <laughs>